Good morning. It is good to be here with you today, and I hope that you are all having a wonderful service so far. Is everyone enjoying the service? We wished each other that. How's that going so far? Okay, come on, give me some feedback here. Are you enjoying the service today? Okay, that's good. Yeah, you know, and it's okay to be enthusiastic in church. That's all right. We're, we're, we're not here to be, to be gloomy or dour or, or be like half asleep and, oh, let's just get this over with already. Matishlopes can wait for later on today, all right? Let's, uh, let's remember that. We're here to worship the Lord. Let's give him our enthusiasm as well. Uh, it's great to be here, and it's good to see uh, some of you who are home uh, from Uh, school. Karen's back for the weekend, and I think a couple others are as well. And uh, Brooklyn's back for the weekend too, so I'm probably missing someone, but I'm not sure. But uh, it's good to have you here. And Jocelyn, thank you for reading the scripture. That was great. Good job today. And uh, yeah, it's wonderful to have everyone who's a part of it today. Let's now uh, just bow, and I would invite you uh, as we go to prayer, let's uh, begin by sharing in the Lord's Prayer together, and I would invite you to stand with me as we do so. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, both never and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Now many years ago, there was a Baptist preacher in Georgia named Anonymous McBride. Now, if you're wondering about the strange name Anonymous, that was his mother's attempt to honor a poet that she was particularly fond of, not realizing that Anonymous was actually, well, you know the rest. Nonetheless, she named her son Anonymous McBride, and he grew up to become a Southern Baptist minister. Now, Anonymous had a very peculiar style of preaching, and he was especially famous for having a knack of making anyone who was not baptized by full immersion feel very uneasy or insecure about their own baptism. So he would forcefully declare that baptism by sprinkling or pouring water on the head just simply was not enough, and so he persuaded many of them that unless they went completely underneath the water, they were lost souls, the baptism was simply not valid any other way. And so the result of this was that most every Sunday afternoon, down at the Chattahoochee River, he rebaptized 10 or 15 people every Sunday. Well, everything was going well until he met a Methodist lady named Raynell Roberts. After persuading her that she needed to be rebaptized, he scheduled her for underwater baptism the following Sunday afternoon. But Raynell's desire for rebaptism was exceeded only by her fear of water. Now, she was so terrified of water, the prospect of going underneath it completely just paralyzed her with fear. And so she thought, how can I be obedient to the command to be, to be baptized and yet have this paralyzing fear of going under the water? So she came up with a strategy. 
She happened to have a son who had been in the Navy. He had brought home one of those Navy life jackets with the flotation devices in it. It gave her an idea. She took the flotation material out of the life jacket and sewed it on the inside lining of her dress. Well, the day came for the baptism service that no one would ever forget. Everyone gathered along the shore of the Chattahoochee River. Raynell was led out into the water by Anonymous, and after speaking the words of baptism, he tipped Raynell back. But to his shock, he couldn't get her under the water. While the people along the bank gasped and then tried not to laugh as a great struggle ensued. Anonymous doggedly trying to pull her under the water. Raynell thrashing wildly. This went on for nearly a minute, Two hippos that looked like frolicking and thrashing in the water. Raynell was determined he was going to get this soul under the water. He was going to save her. And she was equally determined to break free from his grasp. Now, it just so happened that at that time of year, the Chattahoochee River was quite swift. The current was quite strong. And so in the midst of this baptismal struggle, Raynell finally broke loose from the preacher's grasp. And off she floated down the river. As if on cue, the choir broke out singing, In the sweet by and by, we shall meet on the beautiful shore, as she disappeared from view around the river's bend. Now, as the story goes, it's hard to know how much of it is truth and how much of it became folklore, but it is still talked about to this very day in that region of Georgia. Now, the story also concludes that Anonymous McBride never attempted to rebaptize anyone ever again. <laughs> he was cured. Now, as this humorous story illustrates for us, there is often great confusion and uncertainty involving the act of Christian baptism. Now, all Christians will agree that it is vitally important. The scripture commands it. It is something that is, that is commanded throughout scripture as something that goes together with the act of repentance and turning oneself over to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But while we all agree that it, it is important, there is much debate on almost everything else. Some of the main debates are around things like whether or not the physical act of baptism saves you, or whether someone should be baptized immediately at birth, infant baptism, or whether it's something that should be done later on as an adult, a believer's baptism. Uh, people will debate things about what is the right mode of baptism, whether sprinkling or pouring is the right one, or whether being fully immersed is the right one, as we saw in the story. And so today I want to hopefully clear up some of the confusion surrounding baptism. I want to show you why baptism is so important, and what being baptized into Jesus Christ means for the everyday life of the believer. So I invite you to turn with me again to Matthew chapter 3, and let's take a closer look at the story that Jocelyn read for us just a little, little while ago. Now, in Matthew chapter 3, here we are introduced to what only can be described as a rugged wilderness man. This man, named John the Baptist, is described in such terms that would make the Robertson men of Duck Dynasty jealous. You know, the, the full beards and the big hair and the wild appearance. Well, John the Baptist would make these guys look like choir boys in comparison. And so here, as we see this description of him in verse 4, we see him uh, wearing clothing made of camel's hair. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a camel before or had the opportunity to touch or ride one. I got the chance. It's quite rough. <laughs> it's coarse. 
This is not soft. This is not comfortable. This is rugged apparel that he is wearing, camel's hair. Also, we see that his diet is quite peculiar. He's living on a diet of locusts. Does anyone here know what a locust is? It's like a grasshopper. That's the closest comparison. So everyone here knows what grasshoppers are. Now imagine that's your primary source of, pro- of protein is coming from grasshoppers. Notice that it's also coupled together with wild honey. I'm thinking grasshopper, wild honey, dip. <laughs> Crunch, it just makes sense, right? They go together. I don't think he was eating too many locusts without the honey. So now we're introduced to this wild man who's living off the land. He's got this rugged appearance, and he suddenly shows up on the scene. He arrives on the bank of the Jordan River. Uh, Elsewhere, we learn that he had been living in the wilderness. And and this man had been out there for some time. We know from his backstory that he was born, uh, he's a cousin to Jesus, and he was born with a specific assignment to be the the forerunner of the Messiah, to be the one who would come and declare that the, the time is at hand, the Lord is near, so prepare your hearts. And so that is the simple message that he, that he brings. He comes out of the wilderness, and he just starts preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now you would think such a simple message, people would say, well, you got anything else to say? But he had such a fire and such a passion, such an obviously God-ordained mission, that the people began to flock to him. The people began to come from all over. It's described that verses 5 and 6, that people came from as far away as Jerusalem and all the surrounding countryside to come to listen to his sermons and to finally turn their hearts over in repentance, to say, I'm sorry for my sin, and I want to symbolize that. I want to show that cleansing by going in the water and getting baptized. And so there John was, out on the Jordan River, most likely across from uh, what is, well, back then was Jericho as well, and it's only a few kilometers away, but he's right on the edge of the wilderness. Civilization's on one side, wilderness is on the other, and people are coming to this remote location to be baptized by John. Now, the slide behind me, which has been the the idyllic backdrop for our story here today, is a picture that I actually took of the Jordan River. Now, this looks like a nice lush location, doesn't it? We got flowers, we got some palm trees, it looks nice and picturesque. Well, this picture was taken just a couple of kilometers south of the Sea of Galilee. So here the water is still quite fresh, the setting is beautiful, and so naturally today it's the most popular location for people who would like to be baptized in the Jordan. And so here, actually a number of people in our group decided to be baptized. Uh, the next slide, which I'm going to s- skip to here in a moment, shows our group leader, whose name is James Hunt, and he is going through the, the ritual of sharing the words of baptism, what it means, and then he goes through the act of baptizing six members of our group in the Jordan River. And so there you can see him right in the middle, the person's just being tipped back and going into the water. It was a beautiful moment to be able to share in these uh, faith journeys of these individual people who decided that they wanted to commit themselves to the Lord Jesus and to symbolize that through being baptized and going down to the water of the Jordan River. And so now that we have a good visual for exactly what John the Baptist was doing, I want to pause for a moment to clear up a few questions surrounding baptism. The first question 
is probably the most important question. And I've been asked this before, and some people are confused on this. The question is, does the physical act of water baptism save you? Is it the act of going in the water? Is that the moment of your salvation? So let me ask you that question. What do you think? No. Okay. That's a quick answer. That's what I was expecting. No, it doesn't. But before we move on from that too quickly, let me just throw a curveball at you. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Quoting the Apostle Peter, who responds to people, what should we do? They were ready to repent, and this is what he tells them. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now notice that Peter doesn't just say repent. He says repent and be baptized. Notice he links that together with for the forgiveness of your sins. Then in Mark chapter 16, verses 15 to 16, Jesus said, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Now at first glance, we hear these verses And this throws a little bit of a curveball, a monkey wrench, into our quick response. No, it is not baptism. Here we see the two things, belief and baptism, are linked together with the forgiveness of sins and salvation. So now, how do we respond to that? What would your comeback be to those verses? Public statement of faith? Good. I'm noticing the answers aren't coming back quite as quickly as they were on the no, right? It's interesting when we have to think these things through. Well, I won't make you sweat anymore. I'm going to help you out a little bit. I want you to notice in Jesus' words that though he connects belief and baptism with salvation, there is a nuance in the second line when he says, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. I want you to take note that he didn't include baptism in the second statement. He thereby singled out disbelief as the reason for condemnation, not the lack of baptism. Now, this isn't conclusive all by itself, but it points us towards an important distinction between belief and baptism. And this point becomes increasingly clear when we read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. A familiar passage that says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now, this also brings to mind the thief on the cross, who at the last hour said, Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom. He didn't have the opportunity to be baptized. There was just simply no chance to do that. And yet Jesus responded to him, today you will be with me in paradise. And so, in other words, we see here that believing in Jesus by faith and verbalizing that, as Rocky pointed out, verbalizing that with our mouths is all that is necessary for salvation. No outward works, even baptism, can be added to belief in Jesus Christ and expressing that with our mouths in a verbal sort of a way, confessing our faith. Now, the second question is this. Does the mode of baptism make a difference? In other words, being baptized by submersion, being sprinkled or poured upon, is there a difference between the two? The short answer I'm going to tell you is no. (laughs) Now, if you want to hear more, I'll elaborate. You see, the most important aspect of baptism is not exactly how you get wet, but why you get wet. 
Does that make sense? It's not the how, it's the why. For example, returning to John the Baptist in Matthew 3, verses 6 to 8, we read this. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him, that's John the Baptist, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Not exactly gracious or winsome, is he? You know, we talk about being winsome in our witness. John's not exactly practicing that. He sees the Pharisees show up one day as he's preaching and and baptizing, and he singles them out with a very, very lovely greeting. You brood of vipers. Wow. I, I bet you they were feeling the warm and fuzzies at that moment, right? They're like, yes, we like John the Baptist. Now, why did John respond with such outright venom, for lack of a better term, towards these Pharisees? You would think that John should be happy to have these religious types coming on board with his message and being baptized. But you see, John, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. God gave him a lot of discernment. He knew what was really going on in the religious circles of Jerusalem, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And John knew their hearts. And he knew that all of the dunking in the world wouldn't get their hearts clean if they didn't first repent of their sin and their hypocrisy. You see, our baptism is not so much about God looking at whether or not we have been poured in baptism or whether we've been dunked under the water. It is about God looking at our hearts. Is there genuine, true repentance within our hearts? Because for the Pharisees, there certainly wasn't. They might have gone through the act of getting baptized by John to, you know, show solidarity with the people or have other people say, yes, look how religious they are. But John knew that their fruits of their lives was not in keeping with repentance. They might have gone through the outward act, but their actions were not meshing up with what they were professing. And so here we come to this all-important statement that you've heard before, but it still bears repeating. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. In other words, you can take a bath and get squeaky clean on the outside, but still be filthy and full of sin on the inside. You see, the outward act of baptism is a visual demonstration of what Jesus has already done inside of us when he cleansed our our hearts and our souls and our minds from the filth of sin and all of the effects of it. And when Jesus has been been brought in on the inside and done that cleansing work, we show it on the outside through this act of baptism. However, if we are to get baptized in the outward sense, in the the physical realm, without having been first cleansed on the inside, it becomes nothing more than a hollow and meaningless ritual that will do absolutely nothing for you. Now, I'm going to say something that may sound a little crazy to you. There could be people here today who have been baptized but never saved. Does that sound crazy? That it is possible to enter through the water of baptism and never have received salvation. And on the flip side of that, there could be people here who are saved but never been baptized. Isn't that an interesting thought? It is not the 
physical act that saves. It is the inward reality of Jesus' cleansing, which we then follow through and show in the outward act of baptism. And so the most important question that you need to ask yourself is this. Have I truly repented of my sin and put my faith completely in the Lord Jesus to save me, to cleanse me, to come in and make me new? You see, it's the attitude of our heart that matters most, not the specific mode in which we are baptized. Now, those of you who are familiar with Mennonite history already know this, but for some of you who may not be, it's an interesting part of our history. Now, it may be shocking to some of you that there was a time in our Mennonite heritage back in the colonies of Russia, modern-day Ukraine today, where all of our ancestors came from. There was a time there where the Mennonite faith became stale religion. It became stagnant. It became just another, another mode of, of living life and going through the motions of faith without there being that inward reality. And how this began to happen over the generations was the fact that it was a closed community. And so everyone was born to Mennonite parents, therefore everyone was born into a Mennonite church, and therefore everyone was born into the Mennonite faith. And so it was simply taken for granted that you would grow up in the church, you would grow up in the faith, and when you got to the point of the right age, and you're 18 years old, and you'd gone through your catechism, and you'd memorized the right answers, you would be baptized, and you would be a full-fledged member of the church. And it was just taken for granted that everyone was saved. Everyone was a Christian, because we're all a part of the church. But what began to happen is this just became a ritual. People were not experiencing this, this personal connection of having the Lord Jesus come in and make us new, make us clean. And they were missing out on the personal relationship with Christ. And so what happened is that there was a revival. There was a revival within some of the Mennonite communities in Russia. And what happened was an offshoot happened. And guess what? The reason why we have two Mennonite churches in Killarney is exactly as a result of that. The Mennonite Brethren is the church that came out of that revival. There was a a work of the Spirit. People were convicted of their sins. And they realized that, that what they'd been doing was just going through a ritual. It wasn't personal. And so when people became convicted of this and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, there was such an awakening within, within this, this new body of believers within the colonies that they decided we've got to worship on our own and the others kind of shooed them out because they were a little too out there, a little too charismatic for their liking. And so the Mennonite Brethren Church became the offshoot. And so the way to distinguish themselves in this new faith was to say, you know what, we've been pouring by, by sprinkling or baptizing by pouring, so now we're going to get rebaptized by immersion. And this was the sign, and this was why, to just the very last generation, there was still a strong divide between the Mennonite church and the Mennonite brethren, saying, you have to get baptized by immersion, and we said, no, you can be baptized by pouring. And we wouldn't recognize each other's modes of baptism as valid. How crazy is that? Thankfully, that wall has been broken down. And today... We are welcomed in the Mennonite Brethren by pouring as they are welcomed here by immersion. And so today we actually practice both modes of baptism within our church as is requested because we identify that the most important thing is not how you get wet, but why you get wet. And both have rich symbolism. The pouring symbolizes this anointing of the Holy Spirit. 
The going under the water, of course, symbolizes dying with Christ, going under the water and rising to new life when you come out of the water. And so these are some of the things that we need to have clear in our minds. We don't want to get caught up in the ritual aspect. We need to be right with our Lord Jesus in a personal way. Now the third question I want to address today comes back to the first question about whether or not baptism saves you. Now, we answered to that, no, it doesn't. But then it begs the question, if baptism isn't necessary for salvation, then why bother? Why bother going through with it at all? Well, there's a number of reasons. The first one is, if we want to be obedient to Jesus' teaching, we simply need to be baptized. On this point, there is simply no argument. Jesus was baptized, his disciples were baptized, and he told his disciples when they went out to make new disciples, the first thing to do was to baptize them. That was the initiation into the faith. It was simply the beginning point. And this he makes very clear. So though we receive salvation by faith alone, baptism is always the very next step. Throughout the New Testament, the book of Acts, very often the people would commit themselves to Jesus Christ and often get baptized the very same day. They'd often be that evening or even sometimes the very next moment they would be baptized. And so we see the two being linked together as the beginning point of the Christian journey throughout Scripture. And so here we see that quite simply, after asking Jesus to save you and cleanse you on the inside, the very next step of obedience is always to to symbolize that in an outward way by being baptized in the water. Secondly, we are baptized to follow Jesus' example. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, we see Jesus is baptized. And Jesus was most likely baptized, not in the idyllic scene that I showed you earlier on. He was most likely baptized in this location. And if the slide comes up here, you'll notice... That this location, well, when it comes up, is not quite as idyllic as the first one is. Let me try to get this right. There we go. Now, you'll notice that it's a little more barren, a little more sparse, and the water is a little less clear. You see that brown color sort of on the water? That's actually what it looked like. It is brown. It is full of silt. This is right near... Uh, a couple of kilometers away from the Dead Sea, and along the way it picks up all this dirt, and the water's quite muddy. This is actually the location that's believed where John the Baptist was preaching and teaching, and where Jesus, most likely somewhere right along this riverbank, was baptized. And so we then realize that it's not the water that makes you clean. (laughs) In fact, you might need a bath after getting out of the water here. But it was the act of the act of obedience and going through this. But now we need to ask the question, why was Jesus baptized if it wasn't for the forgiveness of sins or for repentance? Because we know Jesus was perfect. He didn't need to have sins forgiven. He didn't need to repent of anything. So why then was he baptized? Well, he gives the interesting response. He says, to fulfill all righteousness. Now, does Jesus need to be made any more righteous? No, he's already the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. I don't think there's anything that he needed to do to increase his righteousness. And yet he says to fulfill all righteousness was the reason he gave to John for being baptized. Now, different scholars have extrapolated what that could mean. 
But to really just keep it simple, basically what he's saying is to fulfill all righteousness is to go completely in line with the will and plan of his father. And so he knew that the whole point of him coming to earth was to be in line with the will and the plan of his father, which meant going through with his ministry to the point of the cross to be a sacrifice, to be a sin offering for us so that our sins could be forgiven. And so there came a beginning point of his ministry, and this was it. The time had come, the fullness of time had come, and now he was beginning the ministry. And so Jesus sets his ministry off on this tone of saying, we're, we're beginning on a righteous tone. We're, we're doing something that is showing the world that I have arrived, that God is here, and if there's any questions left to remain, I'm going to dispel those in a very short period of time. And so here we see Jesus getting baptized to initiate his ministry. Now, too often, for many, many people, baptism carries the connotation of having arrived at some super spiritual level. And that the moment we get baptized, we become these super Christians who never get tempted anymore. We never have impure thoughts anymore. You know, we just, we're, we're barely capable of sinning anymore because we've been baptized. We're just so on fire from this day forward. That is a load of something. Hooey, whatever you want to call it. But that is not true. And we need to get that idea out of our, out of our minds altogether. And sometimes I've heard people say this, and people will often give this as a reason for not getting baptized. They'll say, I want to be baptized, and I want to join the church just as soon as I get my life in order. And if that's what we're waiting on, we'll never get baptized. You see, none of us will ever have our lives sufficiently in order to be baptized if we're going to, in our own efforts, say, I'm going to get myself to the place of being worthy of baptism. See, baptism is all about our unworthiness. It's coming to the point of saying, humbly, I am a sinner. I need to repent. I need God to clean up my life because I'm a mess. And so it's not a sign of saying, I've arrived. It's a sign of saying, Lord, cleanse me. I'm a sinner. I am repenting. And I want to begin living my life for you. You see, baptism is the beginning of the journey with Jesus. It's a declaration that he is now our Savior and our Lord. And that from this day forward, I will follow him. And when I fail and fall flat, I will confess my sins. I will get back up, and I will keep following. And so we, we ultimately are baptized to declare to God, to ourselves and to the world, that I'm all in. All in. And Romans chapter 6 puts it this way. Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Ivan the Great was the Tsar of all of Russia during the 15th century. At one point in his reign, it was brought to his attention, I guess he was so caught up in all of his wars, it was brought to his attention that he needed to find himself a wife in order to produce an heir. And so his advisors were sent out to search the capitals of all of Europe to find an appropriate wife for the great Tsar. Word came back to Ivan of the beautiful, dark-eyed daughter of the king of Greece. She was young, brilliant, charming, the right bloodlines. It was a perfect match, and he agreed to marry her sight unseen. 
Well, the king of Greece was absolutely delighted. It would align Greece in a favorable way with the emerging giant of the north. But there had to be one condition. He cannot marry my daughter unless he becomes a member of the Greek Orthodox Church. And Ivan's response was, I'll do it. And so a priest was dispatched to Moscow to instruct Ivan in Orthodox doctrine. Ivan was a quick student and learned the catechism in record time. Arrangements were concluded and the Tsar made his way to Athens accompanied by 500 of his crack troops, his personal honor guard. The day of the baptism came and what a sight that must have been. 500 priests and 500 soldiers all going down to the river. There, the 500 troops had said in a sign of solidarity with their king, if he was going to be baptized into the church, they too were going to be baptized. And so everyone agreed that this was acceptable. The priests, all 500 of them, along with the 500 soldiers and Ivan himself, went down to the water. The priests in their black robes and tall hats, the soldiers in their battle uniforms with all of their regalia and their weapons hanging from their sides. They, however, came into a snag at this exact moment. One of the bishops in the church suddenly realized these these men had, well, I guess, were soldiers. They had swords on them. They would have to give up their occupation as soldiers. They would have to renounce violence and bloodshed. There could be no killers in the church, they said. And so this little snag was something that Ivan just had no patience or time for. He said, what do we have to do? And so after a hasty round of diplomacy, the problem was solved in a very simple manner. As the words were spoken and the priests began to baptize each of them, each soldier reached to his side and withdrew his sword. And lifting it high overhead, every soldier was totally immersed, baptizing everything except his fighting arm and his sword. (laughs) You know what? This is a historical fact. This actually happened. The unbaptized arm. What a picture. And as I thought about this story, it made me think, Is this not similar to a picture of Christianity today? How many unbaptized arms are there here today? How many unbaptized arms are there in the Church of Canada? How many unbaptized talents are lying dormant because they have not been given over to Christ? How many unbaptized checkbooks unbaptized smartphones, unbaptized schedules, unbaptized entertainment choices, unbaptized ambitions, goals for the future, even our own thought life. How many of these things have we held up out of the water? And you see, baptism is intended and has always been intended to be an all-or-nothing proposition. We can't give only a part of ourselves to Jesus and keep the rest out of the water. He demands absolutely everything. He wants all of us, the good, the bad, and the ugly. He wants it all because he wants to take our lives and to cleanse them and to make them brand new. But so long as we're holding parts of ourselves back, we're denying him permission to do so. You see, at my baptism, the declaration was made that Danny Greening is dead. I am dead to sin. I am dead to myself. The old Danny died with Jesus on the cross. But you know what my baptism also declared? 
It declared that Jesus has now made me alive. That Danny Greening is more alive than he's ever been before because I am now hidden in Christ. I am no longer myself. I no longer belong to, my, to myself, my own ambitions, my own dreams. They're not mine anymore. They're his. I have now been hidden in Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so now, my life is completely given to Christ. He is my life. His ways are now my ways. His plans are now my plans. Quite simply, I'm all in. And that's what baptism declares, that we're all in. We're not keeping arms out of the water. We're not keeping swords out of the water. We're keeping nothing out of the water. We're all in. And so today I want to encourage you that if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ to save you, to forgive you of your sins, but have not been baptized, let me just encourage you to seriously consider taking the important step of obedience and faith to be baptized. And to those of you who have already been baptized, I want to ask you, are you living the baptized life? Or are there parts of your life that you're holding out of the water, that you're keeping back, not giving yourself fully to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? If so, let's get back in the water. Let's repent and confess of those sins and ask God to cleanse us, that we would live the truly baptized life, that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And you know what? Once we decide to do that, the Lord Jesus takes over. He takes over completely, and our lives are now completely filled and empowered by His Holy Spirit, which works within us. And you'll begin to find Him doing things within you that you never before thought imaginable. And yet that is His, that is his power, that is His work, and that is His desire for each one of us here today. And so I would invite you to consider as we go to prayer what the Lord Jesus would ask of you today as we come again to the waters of baptism. Lord Jesus, we have considered today what it looks like to be baptized. We've considered what it meant for you to get baptized, but also, Lord, what it means for us to get baptized. And Lord Jesus, we know that before taking that all-important step, that internal step of, by faith, believing in you, putting our trust in you and asking you to cleanse us of our sins, to come into our lives and to make us new, until we do that, the outward act of baptism holds no power or significance. But Lord, once we have made that step to put our faith in you, Lord, we know that you have asked and commanded us to be baptized. And so Lord, if there's anything in someone's life here today that is holding them back from taking that, that step of obedience, I pray, Lord, that you would just speak to them exactly where they're at right now and show them what needs to happen in order for them to step out in faith to enter the water of baptism. And Lord, for those of us here today who have already been obedient to the water of baptism, I pray, Lord, that right now, if there's anything in our lives that we realize that we've been keeping out of the water, that we've been holding on to from the old flesh, the old sinful nature, that we're just, just having a hard time letting go of, Lord, I pray that we would fully enter the water, even right now, and we know that your Holy Spirit is ready to cleanse us, Lord, of all unrighteousness as we confess these things to you. So give us, Lord, grace and mercy as we come to you, for we know that you are ready to forgive, ready to save, and ready to give us the power to live out the life that you would have for each one of us. Thank you, God, for your word and for your example. Bless each one now as we go, in Jesus' name. Amen.